Okay, class. Today we're gonna start with the basics. Welcome again to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where New Life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. I'm Pastor Eric, your host, and with me are our guests again. Um, I am looking at these two beautiful faces, the face of Paul Wells hi, and Daniel Hintz. Hello. And we are excited to continue this conversation of what is the gospel, of course, using N.T. Wright's book, Simply Good News, as a conversation partner. And this is the fourth chapter, the fourth conversation that we're having uh, about this. And today we are going to be discussing uh, what what N.T. Wright calls distorted and competing gospels. So we're going to dig in a little bit deeper than the last couple of weeks. Um, Last three, three chapters were really pretty broad. And he spends, N.T. Wright spends a lot of time laying, laying foundation. And I think that what we'll see this, this week is that this is when we really kind of get into the nitty gritty of the gospel and what um, it does to us and how it operates in the world. So to get us going, um, Paul, why don't you give us an overview of the chapter and, uh, and we'll go from there. Thanks, Eric. Um, so chapter three was uh, just get us up to where we're at now. Um, chapter three was really about how Jesus wasn't the king uh, or the deliverer or the savior that the people in his time were expecting him to be. Um, and how I was really surprised at, about who Jesus was. And, um, and now chapter four is sort of about how in our particular time in history, there are things that make it difficult for us. Um, to understand really who Jesus was um, and and cause us to distort the gospel. Um, also, different philosophies that we have just in our culture today um, that undermine our understanding of the good news. Um, so, uh, N.T. Wright really starts this chapter off uh, by talking about um, the historical context for, or not the historical context, but um, the historical reliability of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And he makes the, the distinction that you, know, you can't study history the same way that you would study science because you can't go back and, and, and repeat everything that's happened. And, um, um, but, you know, without going into a great deal of detail or giving a lot of the typical apologetic proofs, for, um, you know, infallibility or inerrancy of scripture, um, uh, NT basically just says, um, on, based on his knowledge and the knowledge of a lot of other really smart people, most everything that you read in the gospels can be taken as historically accurate with the exception of the resurrection, because the resurrection is completely outside of anything normal or typical and and he focuses on that and he comes back to it later in the chapter um when he talks about how all of human history really changes at the cross and the resurrection Mm -hmm. um and how our modern view sometimes skews that a little bit so going from talking about how we can rely on the gospels rely on the things that are in the gospels Um, he starts to talk about what are some of the ways that, um, well, what he says is Jesus said a lot of things that were difficult for people to understand in their time. Mm -hmm. And then he starts talking about what are the things in our time that make it sort of difficult for us to understand. We know that Jesus said these things. We know that they're reliable and accurate and we can, we can have faith that he did say these things. Um, so what are the things that make it difficult for us to understand and believe the good news that that Jesus was declaring, um, and so he really he really breaks that up into um, kind of three broad categories. The first one is is problems with um, the church. What what has the church done that that has made 
it difficult um, to understand the good news. The one is sort of the um, philosophical um, soil that our culture uh, is growing in, Western culture, and that's really the Enlightenment. And then um, the next one is sort of our view of history in the modern age, where we see ourselves as being sort of superior um, to the, all the cultures that came mm-hmm. before us. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the church, and you know, in in the church, he talks about how we overfocus on you know hyperpenal substitutionary atonement. Um, he talks about how um, we kind of miss the context of creation and we miss the context of, of the covenant. Um, and then when he's talking about our culture, he talks about what the alignment has done with rationalism and romanticism and sort of separating out, you know, um, spiritual. So for most of history, people saw the supernatural and the natural as kind of intertwined and together and what the alignment really did is separate those two things out. So we don't, we see them as separated. It's almost like God is upstairs and we're downstairs. Mm-hmm. And then when, then with, with, um, the modern age, we think that the history of the world really, you know, hinges around the movable type printing press or other, um, uh, technology advances, um, uh, that brought us out of the dark ages mm-hmm. instead of looking at the, the when history changed for the better was when Christ raised from the dead. Mm-hmm. So in extremely broad strokes, that is right. what chapter four is about. So we'll start with the historicity of the Gospels. In general, um, our culture and our society would not claim that the gospels are historically reliable. So what are some of the arguments uh, against their reliability? Like what are some things that people say about the gospels uh, that would make them seem unreliable? Well, one of those things is that Jesus says a lot of really strange things that don't make a lot of sense. So he makes a claim that he's, um, coming to bring a new kingdom um, and yet he he doesn't speak as any other leader um, in the history of the world speaks as they're trying to establish a kingdom or grow their empire or anything mm-hmm. like that you know he's not talking about conquest he's, he's talking about you know the first will be the last and mm-hmm. whoever wants to be the greatest among you must be the servant of all um, so that's that's one of the things is that is that Jesus doesn't really, yeah, maybe he was a good moral teacher, um, and he may have some good moral lessons, um, but as far as someone actually coming and and establishing a new kingdom, um, it just doesn't it doesn't match what we see. Right, which builds off of what we talked about, um, you know, last week uh, or in the last chapter with. Um, like how Jesus comes as a surprise that like mm. he is, he radically defies the categories that we try to put him in. Mm-hmm. You know, if we try to paint him as just a moral teacher, but then he's talking about all of this stuff about bringing a new kingdom and, you know, all of these political, all this political language. And you're like, well, right. that's not moral. But if you try to cast him into the political, um, you know, uh, radical kind of, um, overthrow of the Roman Empire sort of thing. Well, then he's right. talking about all this other stuff that doesn't make any sense in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you really have to approach Jesus from the context of kind of what we've been talking about, the context of Scripture and the story that he is a part of instead yeah. of trying to kind of say, well, he fits into this story or this story. And that's something that N.T. Wright gets to, um, I think it's in the third part of this chapter, Um where he's talking about, you know, the Enlightenment, and um, we try to cast Jesus as, you know, he was uh, an enlightened, you know, uh, a child of the Enlightenment just born a few hundred years too early. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He was all about those ideas, but he was just, you know, born in, you know, Jerusalem and the Roman Empire um, instead of, you know, in the 1700s in France. Although by a 
many artist depictions of Jesus, you might think he was uh, born in 1700s France and not right. first century Palestine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good that's a good point that you guys made the that he frustrates our categories. And I think that we hear a lot, like, for example, from groups like the Jesus Seminar uh, uh, several decades ago that tried to determine they brought in all these like all these, you know, experts. I'm doing air quotes experts. Um, and they decided by democratic vote uh, what Jesus actually said and what was like a later addition to his um, to you to his like to the gospel. So if you want um, a laugh, you should look up the Jesus seminar and essentially what they did, they put out the gospels and they uh, had different highlights about the probability that Jesus actually said this. Uh, Jesus probably said this, or Jesus definitely didn't. Jesus probably didn't say this, or Jesus definitely didn't say this. And essentially what they did is all the places where Jesus made claims that he was, that he is the son of God, and that he is part of the Godhead, they were just like, oh, Jesus definitely did not actually say this. Like they essentially like just scrubbed um, all of that, like all the supernatural things um, out mm. of the gospels and said all these moral teachings that that is definitely Jesus. So they kind of left all the moral teachings in there and they, so it was like they're approaching Jesus as a moral teacher. Or if you approach him, you know, like you highlighted Daniel as a political figure, uh, you, that's frustrating too, because he does some of the things he says does impact politics and some, they are political statements. Um, but if he is simply trying to be a political figure, he sucked. Like he was terrible so bad. and he, and he failed, right? Like if he's a political figure, he's a failure of a political figure. And same thing, if he's a moral teacher, he's kind of a failure as a moral teacher too, uh, because people didn't really buy into what he was saying. Even his own disciples really didn't buy into what he was saying. So I think that that's an important point that people tried to, uh, they, they they wear certain colored glasses to to look at Jesus, um, mm-hmm. and they they kind of take out all the all the little bits that they don't think fit into the the picture of Jesus that they have. Some some of the point that N. T. Wright kind of hints at here in the beginning of this chapter is in the 21st century in Western civilization we look at that and we say well but they understood it like 2,000 years ago like mm. these things made sense to the people he was talking to and N. T. Wright's kind of saying well no. Like, yeah. they still didn't make sense. Like, there are all of these stories where Jesus tells a parable and no one gets it. And right. everyone's confused. And then they walk away and they get mad at him. The parable of the seeds made perfect to them because they made perfect sense to them because they were agrarian culture. And so they all understood exactly what Jesus was saying. If you were a farmer, you would have a better you would understand yeah. what Jesus was except saying. For, except for when nobody understood what he was saying and yeah. the disciples had to ask. <laughs> okay. Yeah, like the you have the feeding of the 4,000 and that happens. And then the disciples are like, well, we didn't bring bread on the boat. Like, is that going to be a problem, Jesus? Like, they weren't getting it. They yeah. didn't get it then. Uh, just like we struggled to, to grasp yeah. it now. Um so I think that that's one of the things, but I, I think to answer or to get back to kind of the question you would ask, Derek, about like what are some of those um, some of those objections that people might have to the historicity, I guess you could say, of the gospel. Um, you know, that, that's not really a topic that N.T. Wright gets into a whole lot. There are he basically says, like, there are other books. I've written some yeah. of them about this. You know, something like uh, The Case for Christ is kind of a classic evangelical right. example um, of that. Um, or some of the, the apologetic books. But I, I think that N.T. writes, writing to an audience, he's kind of making the assumption... He's probably already bought yeah, in. Yeah. yeah, you're bought into Christianity. Um, if you're not bought into it, here are some other resources. Um, you know, But the questions that he is addressing are much more, um, what, do, what does it mean if this is true? And like, to what degree is it true? Yeah. And, and what is my... What is my culpability in having to understand that? Right. Like, can I just excuse it and say, well, I don't understand it because I that was 2000 years ago and the world's a different place. Um, And or do I have to still try to grasp and wrestle with those ideas as much today as 2000 years ago? Yeah, I think that I think that he makes a point toward the end of this section that whether or not the Gospels match 
the kind of journalistic historical literal bar that we would expect from, for example, a biography today. Uh, whether or not the Gospels do that, which they don't because they're not trying to, and that was a category that the, the writers did not even have, so there's no reason to expect that they should. But he said even if they don't, even if they don't meet the kind of journalistic historical bar that we would set for a biography today, the people who experienced Jesus, they actually experienced something that radically changed everything for them. Mm. So whether or not we can quote unquote prove the historicity of the gospels, the people who experienced it are different. And I think that's kind of the pattern that we, we see, you know, just like you said, Daniel, that like that we have, we're faced with the same reality that if this is true, that means that everything is different. One of the, one of the things I think in this uh, introductory section um, that N.T. Wright offers an explanation for why some of the things Jesus says are so appear to be so strange. And part of it was that he basically what N.T. Wright said was that he didn't want to reveal too much, not because mm-hmm. the people of the time understood it, but because they had their heads. And he says, uh, even his Jewish contemporaries and how much more his non-Jewish ones had their heads and hearts full of wrong ideas. And he constantly ran the risk that they would hear what he was saying within the context of those wrong ideas and so twist it completely out of shape. And so he kind of talks about how um, as as fallen human beings, we are flawed um, and um, our our minds are not completely clear. We're not like a blank sheet of paper just waiting for God to write true ideas on them. Um, um, but we we come we come to these things with some baggage, whether that's philosophical or emotional or um, intellectual baggage. Um, and so part of part of what makes these things difficult to understand is that we need to have our minds and our hearts renewed in order that Christ would reveal to us that they make. You know, he, he reveals that knowledge to us. Yeah, it is, it's not that, um, that he talks about in that same section, like, um, if we insist on keeping our mental, emotional, and imaginative world the way it's always been, the good news just won't fit, mm-hmm. right? That, that, is, that is the necessity of the, the fact that it's news means that the world has changed. Right. And so if I listen to that news and I say, well, no, but I'm happy with the way the, I, the world was, the way that I understood it. I'm going to fit this retroactively into what I already had. It's no longer news. That's when it becomes advice. That's when it becomes, here's some tips and tricks for living the best version of your life instead of, no, the world as you understood it does not have categories for this kind of news, this, you know, this kind of a gospel, this kind of transformation. So it's not that we need to chop off the bits we don't like and make it fit into our existing ideas. Those ideas and that world needs to change to accommodate this new news that we've received. If we cling on to some of those uh, ideas that we have that, that aren't completely rooted out, some of the ideas and misconceptions that we have, um, that really that changes uh, how we understand what Jesus did, which is exactly what N.C. Wright goes into with the next section of distorting this news and distorting this truth that Jesus of what Jesus did of Jesus life, death and resurrection. And he kind of focuses on like one or two kind of main distortions that the Western world has of the gospel. And what are those distortions that we tend to have of the gospels? Well, the, the first one that he talks about is, um, is how we, we, take one part of the gospel, which is true, the penal substitutionary atonement, and we focus just on that piece. Um, And what we end up doing then is we turn the gospel into 
simply just talking about what you need to do to go to heaven and really trying to make the gospel story your story um, instead of no uh, the gospel story is about what God is doing in all of creation, restoring all of creation. And you as a part of that um, are, are part of that restoration through, through faith in Christ. Yeah. Um, and so when we over focus on, it is all about you're a sinner. And so Christ had to die on the cross. Um, we miss the bigger context in the bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. So let's back up and let's let's address that. You know, the, the term that you used um, to talk about this. So um, I don't even remember if N.T. Wright actually uses this phrase in this book. Um, but Paul, you referenced uh, what's what's called penal substitutionary atonement, uh, which is a particular theory of Christ's work on the cross, and essentially what that the the way that that theory understands the work of Jesus is the story behind that is that you are a sinner and you are going to hell and Jesus is punished uh, in your place so that you can go to heaven and not hell. So those are kind of the three, the three parts of that phrase. It's penal. It's not that's penal as punishment, not penile referring to the male organ. It's punishment, uh, penal, substitutionary, right? Jesus is a substitute, atonement, the way that we're saved. So that kind of that theory of atonement is that is that you God is going to punish you for your sin. Jesus takes your punishment, and uh, and you are saved because of that. And N.T. Wright is very careful to make it clear that the gospel does include that. But the point that you made, Paul, um, in reference to how Interite talks about it is that we tend to uh, inflate the importance of that very narrow way of understanding uh, the work of Jesus on the cross to be for I, I there are there are discussions in theological circles that there are some people who have the position that that is the only thing that Jesus does on the cross. Uh, that's the only thing. That is the reason that he is on the cross, is to take your punishment for you. Um, and N.T. Wright is saying that does, Jesus' work on the cross includes that, but it's so much bigger. Uh, the, the, the work of Jesus is so much more than just this substitutionary act. Uh, but in fact, I heard a lec- uh, uh, uh Maybe it was an interview where he said he said it is in fact you know Jesus' death on the cross is in fact uh, substitutionary and it is in fact atonement right I mean it is these things um, it is not um, it is not not these things but it is these things um, and so much more um, so what is the distortion if we you know we kind of take that idea of your destined for hell Jesus takes your punishment so you can go to heaven what happens if we just tr- turn that up to 11, how does that distort the gospel? Well, it distorts our view of God, first of all, because N.T. Wright kind of points out it, it, that starts resembling something closer to paganism, where, all right, we've you know, got this bloodthirsty God who desires human sacrifice and you know, is sadistic enough to you know, sacrifice his own son and you know it i think that's kind of what people have in mind when they talk about the quote-unquote old testament god yes right it's this very wrathful you know desires sacrifice kind of a thing and you know i think that's a false understanding um but that's that's kind of one element of that is when you focus specifically on the um the the penal the punishment portion of of that it's like okay well what kind of a god would require that sort of you know atonement you know what kind of a brutal violent system Mm -hmm. are we living in where everything is every debt is paid in blood and there's you know all of this um and here it says that's that's pretty close to paganism 
of you know uh, that kind of understanding of the world. So I think that's that's one of the um, one of the first things that gets kind of out of whack when you focus specifically on that one issue. I think another thing that tends to get out of whack when you focus solely on that is out of whack is apparently the phrase that we're going to use because Danny used <laughs> yeah. it and then apparently, I just apparently used Apparently it. the, it's the late 90s again. So <laughs> yeah, whack, bro. <laughs> I, I, I have some surge in my uh, mini fridge. And, um, I play Tony Hawk on the PS2. Yes. I watched Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That was in fact my childhood. I was homeschooled. I have no idea what yeah. most of those things are. <laughs> um, I think more, so. One of the things that happens is that um, every church service turns into a Billy Graham crusade. Absolutely, the church should be about making disciples and bringing people to Christ. Um, and there's more discipleship than just bringing people to Christ. Uh, but we should absolutely be about um, or preaching the message so that mm-hmm. people can accept it. Did I put enough qualifiers on that statement? No, not, not, not quite. That's okay. <laughs> no, <laughs> trying to cover all my bases. Here. I will. I will be the good Lutheran and say you are forgiven. All right. <laughs> I Tay Absolvo. I absolve you of all your sin. Okay. All of my poorly explained. <laughs> Anyways, what happens is you get church services where it's every Sunday is an the sermon has to resolve in an altar call. Right. And even when there's only the same 30 people there. Every right. Week. And and that that's not that it's bad to do altar calls. That's not that it's bad to invite people to give their lives to Christ. OK, those those are there's a lot of this book that these are good things. Right. But they're um, not the only thing. But they're not the only thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's only so far you can take the gospel in a 20 or 30 minute sermon if you keep rounding it back to the starting point over and over and over again. And you see this sort of thing in our culture where we look at the gospel the gospel as just being like, well, I've punched my ticket to heaven. Now I can sit and wait for the bus. Um, and um, I think part of that is because we reduce it down to just that, that substitutionary atonement instead of what God is doing in all of creation to restore everything. Um, we, you know, everything comes back to this, this sort of mm-hmm. altar call mentality. And we don't, we don't do a lot of explaining how does the gospel change your, your entire life, not mm-hmm. just, okay, you're saved. Now you can, you know, now you can sit back or as long as you, you know, volunteer mm-hmm. to be a greeter once a month, um, right. You know, but but actually, what is it that as a fellow heir with Christ Mm -hmm. in in the coming kingdom, Mm -hmm. what is your what is your role through the gospel in bringing relief to the groaning that's in creation? It's such a such kind of a sales pitchy way of doing Christianity. Right. It's just like I don't really care what you do after you've said yes. I just need you to say yes. So that you can go to heaven and then we can move on. And then I guess you could make the argument that it becomes just kind of like a multi-level marketing scheme where, all right, you said yes. Now you need to get other people to say yes. That's right. You need to get them to get other people to say yes. It's like, okay, but once I've said yes, like, what am I doing? Am I just kind of perpetuating this this pyramid scheme Mm -hmm. or is there a deeper purpose to my life? Right that I need right. to live out and discover. Maybe another thing that it does too is it it lends towards prosperity gospel thinking in that if you reduce the gospel down to just simply say the right prayer and you're going to go to heaven, then you get more of a vending machine pagan sort of God where it's right. like, oh, on top of that, if you just like pray the right things mm-hmm. or you sow a seed of faith in your tithing and giving – then God is going to heal you or give you health and wealth. And it sets you up. It's, I think, I think just that piece, if that's all your view of the gospel is, sets you up for, for yeah. failure. Yeah, there, there is very little difference between a pastor who preaches that kind of gospel and a used car salesman. Even down to how they dress is pretty much the same. <laughs> but I think you guys are exactly right. It's very transactional. In nature, and it very much is make sure that you get your ticket to heaven. Um, say the right prayer, feel the right feelings, 
Um, and you'll and you are getting to heaven rather than uh, inviting people to partake in a whole new way of being in a whole new creative process that God is working out in the church. Uh, that's well, those are different things. One of the pictures that N.T. Wright uses in this chapter to sort of explain that dynamic is he talks about how, you know, if you were to go to like a historical site and you were to just like get a, you, you see like a fragment of a, of a painting or a fragment of a, like oh, a yeah. carving. Right. Okay. And you take that and you'll, I think he talks about like a woman carrying something mm-hmm. and he's like, well, based on what we know about the culture, this woman was probably carrying, carrying this thing as part of maybe a new King or something like that. And, um, and you can build this whole narrative based on that one picture. But right. then if you saw the whole picture, it could be maybe she was part of like a funeral procession or, right. or whatever. Um, right. And so over-focusing on that one area causes that to become your whole picture rather than the whole picture defining that one area. He also explores two different, uh, two other types of distortions, uh, and he kind of based in historical time periods. So he talks about uh, the distortion of the Enlightenment on the gospel and the distortion of Romanticism on the gospel. Um, And I don't know which one he does first, but we'll do Enlightenment first. Um, So how has the Enlightenment, which was back in the 18th century, um, 18th and 19th century, probably primarily the 18th century. How has that uh, impacted how we view the gospel today? Because he, he makes two different points with using the Enlightenment, but um, the the big difference, first of all, is like the idea of the the split level view of the world, yeah. right? And so that instead of viewing heaven and earth as an integrated, you know, yes. parts of a whole. It is, okay, there's earth, that's where I live my life, that's where I go to work, that's where my family is, that's where I eat my food, everything is there. And then there is heaven, or the spiritual world. And that's, you know, it's fine if you want to um, think about that, and that's fine if you want to, you know, go to church on Sunday, but that doesn't have anything to do with my life here on earth. Um, and he kind of uses a um, an upstairs-downstairs kind of a metaphor, um, you know, You've seen something like Downton Abbey or, you know, any of those shows where it's like, okay, you've got the upstairs world and that's just kind of off doing its own thing. And then there's the downstairs world. And every once in a while there might be, you know, some brief interaction, you know, there. But really it's best if they stay separate because they don't have anything to do with each other. Um, And that's a relatively new way of understanding the world even though it is the dominant view in Western civilization, you know, right right now. It's like, that's, of course, that's the way the world is. It's like, well, no, that's actually, you know, three, four hundred years old at most. Um, But that's so taken hold of of our culture and the way that we think about things so that you can talk about God and you can talk about things, but there is then a disconnect between, well, what does that mean for me? Because, yeah, it's fine if you want to be a Christian. It's fine if you want to do all those spiritual things. But, like, that's just one part of your life. That is not your life in whole. I, I really looked at this enlightenment piece as, as two sides of the same coin, um, being humanism mm-hmm. in that um, rationalism is is what I can see, touch, taste, yeah, and and feel you know tactily, not. Um, not with my emotions, emotions right. um, is is how I know things to be true and how I can process the universe. Um, and where romanticism is very much more focused on my emotions and yeah, um, right. anesthetics and things like that. And so both of both of those things um, place truth and understanding and processing of the universe in my own being. Mm-hmm. Um and um, and so we have this idea that um, 
these two things are separate and they're, they're different, but they're also completely in your control. Right. Um, and, um, and so we look at the gospel and you can see that like, as you, if you kind of like do a survey of denominations, you can see like, where do they fall on that sort of rational versus romantic scale? Right. Um, and really what that's doing is just highlighting um, which area are you going to, which area of yourself are you going to trust, mm-hmm. which is not what the gospel is. And that's not what the good news is. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to be trusting in God in, in what he has to say for us. Um, and so ultimately, really, that is we place ourselves, whether that's our intellect or our feelings on the throne of, um, our lives instead of God's word. Yeah. Cause I think that you're right that both. So, so the enlightenment was a movement in this, in the late, um, 18th century or sorry, in the mid 18th century, I think, uh, that really, you know, like you said, focused on, uh, the power of the brain, and the power of the mind. And so there's this heavy emphasis on, um, so for example, like the scientific process came out of that, that time period. Uh, we have a lot of, a lot of our world is based on the ideas of the enlightenment. Um, and if I can borrow a, a metaphor from James K. Smith, the, the enlightenment essentially imagines humans as brains on sticks. So like the most important part is your head and Descartes, uh, I think, therefore I am, is like enlightenment to the to the T. That it all has to do. It's very heady, and what's come out of that for Christians, I think, is this emphasis on faith being belief, right? That like I'm buying into this this particular system of belief over this other system of belief, and again, like being a Christian you have to believe <laughs> like you do have to do have some mental assent to uh, particular facts, but that's certainly not the whole thing. Um, and then the romantic uh, period was like the late 18th into the 19th century or yeah, into the 19th century, I think. Um, and if we're using the same, rather than being brains on sticks, it's hearts on sticks where it's like, it's very, it's driven by, your emotion and what you feel. So I think, um, and maybe I'm wrong, but for some reason I think that like, uh, Mary Shelley, right? Like Frankenstein kind of comes out of that movement. Is that a ro- mm-hmm. Is that right? Um, so this very, like, that's when, um, like Edgar Allan Poe, like these people who are really intensely interested in emotion were writing, um, and were popular. Uh, and so I think that you're right, Paul, that we can kind of see in our world today, especially kind of in our denomination, the, the Christian denominations, how some churches lean more toward one or the other. You know, so like the more Lutheran and Reformed world would probably fall more into the Enlightenment kind of category where theology is really, really important and having precise doctrine is really well-defined doctrine is really important. And, you know, the more kind of Wesleyan, Methodist, Nazarene, uh, evangelical, charismatic streams would be very emotive and emotion-driven, really emphasizing the decision to, you know, quote-unquote, let Jesus into your heart, right? Um, that's, that's what drives much of the faith practice and the faith life of uh, people from those kind of denominations is the heart. And and I think that you're right on, Paul, that those things really both boil down to what I can, what I can know and what I can feel. Right. So at the end of the day, both of those really lead to this kind of like humanistic tendency of I am the voice of authority in my faith because mm-hmm. I, I make the decision or I ascend to this particular list of, of doctrinal beliefs and that either that the belief system makes me a real Christian or my, my decision 
my emotion makes me a real Christian is what we tend to tend to focus on in those two systems. And this was the this was the part of the chapter that as I was reading it the first time, um, I felt the most um, convicted by or that I was like, oh, that hits mm-hmm. a little bit too close to home. Ooh, um, OK, because so it starts talking about, you know, the the rationalism approach and um you know, he says that at, at one point, um, the the whole focus shifts away from the events to which these propositions refer to the propositions themselves, mm. right? Where it becomes more interesting to think about the idea than about the truth behind the idea. Yeah. And that is something that I certainly um, find myself falling victim to more often than not is, mm. oh yeah, I'd love to talk about you know, the um, the the systematic idea that this represents. Right. Yeah. Or the um, you know, the the overarching truth that this this metaphor or this story hints at rather than the actual story that that metaphor is told through. Mm-hmm. Right. That Like the, the death mm-hmm. and the facts of the resurrection of Jesus and what that has done um, right. in my life and in the lives of, you know, the church for the past, right. you know, couple millennium, um, it becomes more idea to more um, appealing to just conceptualize that. Like, ah, yes, I can understand this. I can mentally put this in a box. I understand it. I am therefore a good Christian. Yeah. It's like, well, that's a part of it. But, you know, like we were talking about earlier where Jesus, you know, is specifically telling stories and, and phrasing things in ways that make it hard for people to understand and mm-hmm. make it hard for people to kind of um, dig into and, and, and figure out and categorize, you know, part of that is for people, I think, like me, who, you know, if, if everything just made total sense, be like, ah, yes, I can just live here in my thoughts forever and never have to come down to reality where life must actually be lived. Mm-hmm. So I, I tend to view myself the same way in, in being more intellectual. Um, and, um, one of, so one of my current favorite theologians is fond of saying that there's a ditch on both sides of the road. Um, in that, in that, in CS Lu- I, your, your favorite theologian right now is Martin Luther, right? That no, one, right, no. <laughs> as, as a reform person, I only really like, um, uh, the bondage, Oh yeah, that's right. You will <laughs> only only like the the parts of Luther that were affirmed by Calvin later. Yeah, Is that right? Those the only ones. Those, no. did, I, did I tell you that, that? Did I tell you that? There's I have this book on the life of Martin Luther, and it's a really cool book. Um, it, it's it's kind of a, an illustrated life of Martin Luther, and it's really really neat and really really well done. And I I when I got it and and read it through really like looked looked it through for the first time there were some a couple of things that i was like okay that's not like you know they kind of like whitewash a little bit martin luther um which happens you know it's kind of it's like it's not supposed to be an in-depth whatever but it's like the last page was seriously honestly like martin luther had lots of flaws but that's okay because john calvin came along and he made everything right. And he actually was able to recorrect <laughs> Martin Luther's. Like, it was totally just like, it It was a reformed book, but just like was a Trojan horse. You know, it just like brought it in. And you're like, okay, yeah, this is fine. And then the last page is just like, and thank God that John Calvin came along and got everything right after Martin Luther. Totally messed it up. Yeah, I can never confirm nor deny <laughs> whether that's true or not. But uh... anyway. Ditch on um, both sides. There's this, yeah, so there's a ditch on both sides of the road. Um, C.S. Lewis makes a similar comment, and I can't remember in which one of his writings, but basically he says that the C.S. Lewis quote is, the devil always sends errors into the world in pairs so that by avoiding one, he can entrap you. Getting you to avoid one, he can entrap you in the other. Um, so this idea of of um, rationalism versus romanticism. The Bible is pretty 
clear and and makes no um, uh, while there are things in the Bible that are unclear and are not difficult are kind of difficult to understand, it is abundantly clear in the Bible that both our minds and our emotions, or our intellect and our emotions, are in need of um, being restored and renewed through Christ. I think one of the ways that that that's one thing. Another thing is I don't know that the that that our emotions and our intellect are as non-integrated as we would like to believe that they are. And I know that because I'm an I'm a very intellectual person who married a very emotional person. And when, when those things started to come to a head, you start to realize that one Oh, she actually has some good ideas. She's not just running on feelings. And also, I'm way more emotionally invested in my ideas than I realized I was. Mm, wow. um, and, uh, and so to pick one or the other of these flawed things, like we've already said, is to just pick a false idol and sort of set it up. Yeah. Um, and that that bifurcation that really happened in the enlightenment, where we look, where we sort of start to separate out this sort of spiritual and physical, um, we weren't designed to be bifurcated in that way. We are very much integrated. Um, oh, I think in in our intellect and our feelings are a uh, a representation of that, of how God designed this sort of natural supernatural integration. Yeah. If that makes any sense at all. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. And I and I think that I think that you're right that like there's this definitely a tendency for us, and this is again back to back to the point that Daniel made as well, that like there is a tendency for us to kind of focus on one or the other. And you're right, like scripture makes it pretty clear that both our intellect and our emotions are deceitful. Like pretty much above everything else, they're deceitful. And both of those things can be used to avoid the reality that mm-hmm. Jesus did in fact die and was in fact resurrected on the third day. Right. Yeah. That because if that is true, then the implications of that are way bigger than the things that our intellect can grasp or the things that our emotions can feel. Right. That that is just that, that's a downright there are downright cosmic implications to Jesus actually being resurrected from the dead um, and ascending into heaven and reigning now, um, which I think is how Interact ends this chapter. Uh, and I'm glad that he ends it this way is that at, at the end of the day, we can't avoid that reality, um, which I think makes Christianity unique among amongst world religions, because Christianity is really the only one. That says, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then the whole thing is just trash. Right. Right. Paul says that in First Corinthians, right? First Corinthians 15, mm-hmm. um, where he's like, if we are the most pitiable people, if Jesus wasn't resurrected on the third day, if Jesus didn't come back, that makes the whole system ruined. There's which which also makes Christianity deniable. Right. There's a deniability that if Jesus didn't raise then it doesn't matter that nothing else is true. Uh, there, that that's not a reality in Mormonism or in Islam or in uh, Buddhism, right? There's no there's no real deniability available. Like every Christian should be able to say, if for some reason we could categorically prove without a doubt that Jesus didn't rise from the third day, then then I'm not going to be a Christian anymore. Because all the metaphors, all the teachings, all everything doesn't make any doesn't matter. Uh, something radically cosmically changed when Jesus rose from the dead and it changed the trajectory for all of creation, which is what N.T. Wright focuses on. He focuses on creation and covenant. It's kind of two correctives to this, um, that all of creation is being renewed because Jesus, his body was renewed in the resurrection. He talks about in Romans, you know, which is oftentimes kind of the proof text that people use for that penal substitutionary atonement kind of model, mm-hmm. right? Because it's like, oh, clearly Paul is talking about, you know, yeah. that. It's like, yes, but Paul is framing that as part of a larger context where he's right. talking about um, Christ's 
um, ascension as king, right? And it is it is his um, it is his attaining of that um, kingship, that t- taking his rule that is really the the larger story, and that the you know the death on the cross and that um, dying for sins is one piece of that, one piece of the the beginning of that new creation. Um, and and that that is now again to go back to the the idea of news that is now the world in which we are living because that has yeah. happened and yeah. we are now anticipating that and seeing the first fruits of that yeah. um, while while awaiting it in its fulfillment um, which is as you guys were talking um, about that the rationalism and the romanticism um, anti Wright has a very a very pithy uh, phrase where he says. Um, both of them are trying to get the fruits without the roots, Yeah. right? That they are both attempts to say, what do we like about Christianity? Okay, yep, here's the here's the good stuff about it. But let's divorce that from the root of, no, Christ died. He yeah. is now king and lord of the universe. Yeah. The world is different. Yeah. Um, which means that the fruit you are getting is, is a pale imitation, mm-hmm. um, you know, so... So separated from the the life giving truth that oh no Christ is you know reigning on a throne right now in right. heaven um, and we are all um, we are all his um, you know he talks about in Hebrews you know his firstborn of many brothers yeah it makes me think of um, since we're getting to record this and we get to do chapter four right after we did chapter one last mm-hmm. week. I'm sorry mm-hmm. if that lets the cat out of the bag. No, it's uh, <laughs> um, makes me think back to chapter one where he said that um, good news or or news calls for new decisions, making new yeah. decisions. Right. And it's something that you have to reckon yeah. with. You have you actually you have to address it yeah. in some in some manner. Yeah, like just this Sunday, which again, this is like, let's uh, it, I, I didn't say it at the top, but this episode was one of those that the Gremlins got, just like episode one. So now we're recording it after recording almost the entire, all the episodes. We're now recording episode four at the end. But just this Sunday, I preached a sermon on uh, uh, Jesus' teaching of, of love your enemies. You know, you've heard it said, mm-hmm. love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And in any, that is the most ridiculous, stupid thing. Like I have ever heard, right? Like when I think about that, I cannot believe that they came out of Jesus's mouth. Right. And in any world that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That is a teaching that I could look at and say, that's silliness. Obviously there's good guys and there's bad guys, right? Like obviously the bad guys need to be defeated and the good ideas need to defeat the bad ideas. But because Jesus came back to life and because he sits on the throne and because he reigns, I have to take that seriously, right? And I have to see I have to look at that and say, if if the ruler of the universe operated this way and expects me to operate this way as as part of the new creation, uh, then I need to check some of my attitude and I need to check some of my ideas about what it means to operate in the world and what it means to uh, exist in like the realm of politics and the realm of even the realm of ideas in the academy and in my neighborhood, right? Like how I deal with the people in my neighborhood, like that, that actually forces me to change. Like it forces me, just like you said, Paul, to make decisions based on the reality that Jesus is King and that he rules. Um, because if he didn't resurrect, then that teaching really is just foolishness. Uh, but because he's resurrected, that gives it cosmic significance now. It's like we're living in a world where gravity exists, um, and we know that gravity exists, and we're living in obedience to it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that's not because we want anything out of gravity necessarily. Right. It just is. That's just how it is, right? It's a reality, mm-hmm. and we're living in a world of people that are just looking for the nearest cliff to jump off of, um, and and um, that changes the nature of, um, you know, kind of coming back to that hyper penal substitutionary atonement model, Mm -hmm. um, that, that pitch is not, is not simply just, Hey, you're a sinner and you need, you need to say this magic prayer so that you can go to heaven, which by the way, there's not a magic prayer anywhere in the scripture. Yeah. Um, I know there's no such thing. There's no such thing as the magic prayer. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it, it changes that from a, um, uh, from a, a pitch of here's the magic prayer um, to a hey hey buddy let's not jump off this cliff all right you know um, let's 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 get you into a, a place where you are more in line with how the world actually operates who's actually in charge who is actually the king and I think it helps give you, a little bit better perspective on people who are living in rebellion to Christ's rule. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really frustrating when people don't follow good advice because yeah. it's completely obvious. Mm-hmm. Hey, I think I think you have more compassion for people who just don't have a clue that they're headed for danger. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense at all? That sort of distinction yeah. between those two. Yes, it does. So, as I as I shared um, in episode one, um, I work for a credit union, um, and so basically my whole job is to give people advice about how their finances work and how to be responsible with their money, right? And sometimes you have success stories where people listen to that advice, and it's like, oh yeah, and they come back a year later, and you're like. Great. You listened to me. That's great. And then sometimes you have people who do not hear a word of what you're saying and, you know, they have all sorts of problems. Um, and when you, it, it's easy for um, that to just be like, well, it's, it's super obvious. <laughs> like, clearly there is a right way to handle money and a wrong way to handle money. Um, and I can see that. And so everyone else should follow my advice because, you know, I'm a professional. This is what I do. Um, but when when you are coming from a different background or a different context or a different worldview, whatever phrase you want to use, um, and you don't realize just kind of the fundamental principles that were being talked about, you can get all the advice you want. It doesn't matter to you. It doesn't matter even a little bit because you don't see the story in which, like, why that matters. Um, mm. You don't see the consequences. You don't see the benefits because it's just okay, that's some advice, but why, why does that matter? Um, whereas if you can, in, in my experience, like if you can tie it into the, the story that people understand, right? Like the thing that actually relates to their life, you tend to have a little bit more success with getting them to, to accept the advice. Because um, it's, it's not like Christianity is completely devoid of advice. There are some good ideas in Christianity that are helpful for people. Do not murder. That's great. Love that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, all that stuff. But if we reduce it down to, well, I'm just going to give you the advice and then you should take it because it's super obvious and then no one listens to us and we're shocked and we're like, well, why aren't they taking it? Because we we don't understand the story, right? Like Mm -hmm. they they don't understand why that matters, Mm -hmm. Um, which is what the good news is, which is what the gospel is, is, you know, here is in your life, here is the context, here is the story that not only lets you live a happier life, but makes new of the life you are living. And it totally um, transforms and redeems your experience as a human and your, um, your ability to have relationships and to, to live in this world. And as a result of that, kind of like we were talking about with the, the fruit, like there will come, you know, um, advice or, 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 you know, things that you can, you can do from that. 
but separated from the story, separated from the news, no one cares. Yeah. You're not you're not doing those things to attain anything in particular. You're doing those things because the world in which you live operates that way. It's, if you take a loan and you don't make payments, that doesn't work well for you. Like that's just a fact of life. That's right. not, here's some advice, you should do this. It's, that's the way it works. You know what this conversation has me thinking about? And uh, I'm just going to chase this analogy down. I've been thinking about it as you guys were talking. Um, but uh, maybe if I can just, whatever, bring a little pop culture into this conversation. Because yeah. all of our analogies have been perfect, Eric. <laughs> so I'm, 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 I'm including it. and subsuming all of your analogies into this one. Uh, but it's like, it's like Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory. There are rules that govern the world. And for some reason, when you enter into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, those rules just don't work the same way, right? There's like a new set of rules. If there's a, if there's a gum, a bubble gum that can turn a little girl named Violet into a blueberry, right? Like puff her up into four times, eight times the size Obviously, the laws of physics and anatomy as we know them are not actually in operation, right? Like mm -hmm. somehow Willy Wonka in his kingdom is able to exist outside of what we would normally think as the rule, like there's new rules, right? Like somehow a little girl can get dropped down a bad egg chute and live – Maybe, right? There are uh, little orange men who hang out. A big fat German kid can fall into a river of chocolate and get stuck in a tube and not die. You know, Charlie and Unc Grandpa Joe can, what do they drink? Do they drink soda or something like that and like float? I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember what lifting, it is. Fizzy lifting drink. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Like the rules of, and, and the, the little kid, who's the, who's the television kid? television tom or whatever he is mike tv mike tv right like he can be particle blasted into a miniature version right like the rules are not the same and that's that's the same way with jesus that he's resurrected from the dead and the rules are simply not the same in our world we can look around and we can say well the rules are still in effect but within the kingdom it's like there's a whole nother set of rules it's like the reality is so much greater than uh, what we think we can see outside of us. And even the possibility of it made Grandpa Joe, who couldn't walk for whatever it was, however many decades it was, just the possibility, right? Just the proclamation of the gospel, like, broke the rules of medical wisdom. And he was able to walk, right? Like, so that's what I, that's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking mm -hmm. it's like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So that, that makes me think, um, especially Violet and the Blueberry. Yeah. Willy Wonka didn't tell her not to have the gum because he was a jerk. Right. He told her not to have the gum because yeah. it was for her own good. The difference, I think, between that and the Christian reality that we live in is that the gum has been turning us all into blueberries. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> You're turning violet. Violet? Yeah. We're all violet when we eat the gum, and it's and it's not the, – yeah. the rules and the things that you do are not there to, right. to kill your fun. Yeah. They're there because the, the world as you know it is not as you know it. Yeah, and so there's, there's still freedom, right? Mm -hmm. And there's still wonder, and there's still like – crazy LSD trips, right? But but there are there are still rules. Uh, the rules are just different than what we think they are. There's a there's an author, I can't I can't Tim Jennings. I think I mentioned him in another episode that may be in the future or maybe in the past. I can't remember. <laughs> we like God are now outside of time in regards to how this series is functioning. We are we are in the chocolate factory, gentlemen. We are outside <laughs> of the bounds of normal time space reality. Yeah. So I don't I don't know that I would recommend most of what Tim Jennings has to say. <laughs> I find myself disagreeing with him a lot. But 
Um, one thing that he did say in a book that I read that I thought was a very interesting way to look at it is that um, morality is woven into the fabric of the universe. So we have this picture that God is sitting there with a hammer waiting to crush you when you do something wrong. Um, and in reality, it's not so much that God is necessarily reaching into creation and, and providing punishment, although there are cases of that in the Bible. But most of the time, when we violate morality, we are just violating the way that God designed things to operate. And we are living in that rebellion to to how he set things up. And Christ as king is coming back and, and restoring that and helping set um, and helping set us back on that chorus towards living um, in harmony with how God designed things, getting things back to how God designed them to work from the beginning. We're like the spoiled, spoiled rich kid in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I want the world. I want the whole world, right? It works. Yeah. I'm telling you guys. <laughs> you have, you have ushered in a new level. This is the second enlightenment, is what we are now in right now. No, this is now the the third podcast that I'm going to have. We're going to have the the Lord of the Rings by by the sentence, and my other podcast is going to be the theology theology according to Willy Wonka. And it's just going to be. Yeah. An in-depth exploration. Now, is this Johnny Depp, Willy Wonka, or Gene Wilder? No, I uh, I don't know what Johnny Depp, Willy Wonka, you're talking about because in the universe where there's anything good in the world, that does not exist. <laughs> <laughs> Only Gene Wilder exists. I don't know what you're talking about. It's it's a book. It's a book by an Roll author. Adult. Like I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Good conversation, guys. We covered a lot. And I think that we um, ended in a good place because we ended where NT ends it with the reality of the resurrection. Um, despite all of our distortions, Jesus is in fact risen and he is in fact in charge. We probably only created three or four new heresies. So oh, that's exciting. you know what? There's there's no such thing as new heresies, Daniel. It's all the same. There's nothing and I'm sure new that under I'm, the sun. And I'm sure that we can find them in Willy Wonka. So it's all good. <laughs> let everybody else judge us <laughs> yeah that's right all right guys thanks so much thank you paul thank you daniel for hanging out thank you yeah thanks for having us uh thanks for listening guys don't forget to um rate us on itunes or apple Podcasts. that really helps the algorithm out a lot um thank you guys for checking in and listening if you have any questions suggestions accusations of heresy uh send me an email at eric.anderson at nllutheran.com um, and we will address those uh, later. Thanks, guys, so much for listening. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you later. Bye.